Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Scott miller Barry, a filmmaker and festival programmer I first got to know as the director of Toronto's Images Festival, which he ran for 10 years. He's now the managing director at Workman Arts and one of the programmers of their Rendezvous with Madness Film Festival, which gets underway this Thursday, October 28th, in a hybrid edition. There's a lot of good stuff there, in person and online, and you should check it out. Scott chose Born in Flames, Lizzie Borden's DIY Future Shock feature starring Adele Berté and Honey as two feminist broadcasters in a totalitarian America pulled into the resistance after the suspicious death of an activist in police custody. Produced over five years and released in 1983, just as Ronald Reagan was gearing up to run for a second term, it's a primer for direct action and intersectional feminism in the face of an oppressive white patriarchy. And yeah, if you were wondering, its concerns are still entirely valid today. This is someone else's movie. For me, I just can't get enough of it. I, I can never, I can never watch it enough. I can never recommend it enough. I can never screen it, you know, share it enough. It's funny. I yes, I chose Safe by Todd Haynes first, just yeah. to be fair. Sure. Um, uh, because the festival I work at, Rendezvous with Madness, happens to be showing it on Halloween this year. Um, so the timing just seemed uh, pretty uh, in sync. But um, I chose Born in Flames because it also is a film that I think is equally known and not known at all. Right. It kind of has it kind of exists in this. Or, or, or people, even if they know of it, they've never seen it. Like it, yeah. it hasn't always been the easiest film to see. It was out of print for a while and, you know, et cetera. So, um, but I chose it because I just love it. I, 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 I never, I never tire of it. Yeah. Until the 2016 restoration, right? That's when yeah. it was released to the Film Foundation. The one good thing the Hollywood Foreign Press Association has ever done was co-sponsor it um, or co-fund it, in fact. Uh, I don't think you could count on people knowing what it was until then, until it got back out. I mean, I don't want to go full, full deep nerd programmer, but I think, I think it was only available on 16 millimeter from first round features. And then it had a VHS release, of course, at some point. Yeah. That's how I saw um, it. Yeah. And then I, you know, so I think then you're down to public libraries that might still have the VHS. Um, I was lucky to, to screen it a couple times from first run on 16 millimeter, but but you're right. Until 2016, I think it was Anthology Film Archives along with the was it the Academy? Yeah, uh, Academy. The oh, no, foreign, the, Hollywood Foreign Press and Film Foreign Foundation. Foreign, yeah. Correct. Yes, right. The Film Foundation. Uh, they struck a brand new 35 millimeter print, um, which played at TIFF here in Toronto mm-hmm. with Lizzie Borden in person. Um, which is quite exciting. Yeah, it's it's one of those films where it's like, it's, it's reputation kind of precedes it. And then of course people are like, well, how can I watch it? Um, and luckily now, at least in Toronto, it's available on Canopy through the Toronto Public Library. It's also on Vimeo. And Apple rent. TV has it for 99 cents this week somehow as a rental. Well, okay, I just listeners, listeners, what that. are you waiting for? 99 cents. Yeah, pause this, watch that, <laughs> unpause this. What's amazing about it to me now because i revisited it yesterday for sadly more than 99 cents uh (laughs) um it's fine it's fine hopefully lizzie boyden gets some of the money what's amazing about it now is the fact that it doesn't seem to have aged like it's really strange it's a gorilla movie made for no money in new york like shot over five years i think it's something like thirty-three thousand dollars 
uh, in Toto, and it feels like a transmission from now. Like the 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 attitude we have caught up somehow. This 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 radical queer feminist vision is happening all around us, mm-hmm. and the clothes even kind of look the same. Yeah. I just thought of another answer to your first question. I, I, it's important before I respond to your comments is sure. like, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a diehard feminist. I'm also someone who be, I believe in revolution. And like, I personally, you know, believe in liberation for all people. So like that, that's one of the reasons I keep coming back to this film. And, and it's like, yeah, a so-called science fiction 10 years in the future in New York city, where mostly non-white women a mix of lesbians and black and Latina and, and white women get together and like overthrow the government and the media. Like this is, this is it. And you're, and you're so right. It's like, it's literally no budget. It's shot on you know mostly handheld 16 millimeter film. That was my hunches was expired or, you know, it just, it has, it's very, very uh, rough and tumble. Um, it has a very lo-fi aesthetic. Um, it was, um, it was written, and maybe I'll blab more about this later. But it was sure. written mostly collectively. You know, it didn't have a. Tra- it did. It wasn't. It wasn't traditionally scripted. You know, and produced. Right. So it, it evolved over five years, literally collectively. Mm-hmm. And yet, and yet, you know, almost thirty years later. Pardon me, forty years later. Yeah. What What year is it? Um, it 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 feels like it could be brand new. Like there's something. <laughs> There's something about it that it's like, and, and for me, a lot of that is the energy, the energy in, in the cinematography and just in the, in the messages, you know, in the themes, which I'm sure we'll chat about, but it's like, mm-hmm. there's something about the, there's something about the pace and the, and the, even though it's, even though it's analog media, which of course as an analog person, I love, you know, it's radio and it's print newspapers yeah you know these this is the this is the the vehicle for the revolution of the 19 well then 1990s i guess the future yeah. 1990s the quote-unquote um, 90s yeah right it's like it still feels so current it's just it's just there's something there's something so magical i think about what lizzie shepherded right she doesn't she said it to if she doesn't think of herself as the director that that she was forced to put her name on it that way uh, but she doesn't even, even to this day, she doesn't think of herself as the director. She was just kind of like the facilitator, you know, she. That's interesting. It really yeah, it is. Yeah. It does feel like a collective work in that like, you can almost hear the voices of people behind the camera shouting back and forth with the material they're shooting. It felt watching it this time. It feels like an Occupy movie. It feels like it grew out of that mm. movement specifically, or that the Occupy movement is the thing that this is predicting. Although yeah. that was a little more diverse in terms of gender and and, and mm-hmm. ultimately in terms of ideology mm-hmm. than than what we see going on here. Mm-hmm. But the sense of a movement happening in front of the camera, mm-hmm. that's what I take away from Born in Flames. Like it, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel rehearsed, it doesn't feel practiced. And in the in a in the best possible way, yeah, it's messy. Yeah. But it has a point of view and it has mm-hmm this momentum that carries you from beginning to end. It's only 80 minutes long, but it feels like half that. Yeah, that's just true. fires through the narrative. That's true. I, it's funny you say that because I felt that I, I hadn't seen it. I haven't seen it in a few years, but, but when I watched it yesterday, I thought, wow, it doesn't feel it. It feels so much shorter than 80 minutes. It's yeah. like so much, so much is happening. You know, that, that scene where the woman 
um, is aggressed on the street. And then, you know, because the women are running the show, the bike, the bike, you know, the, the, the multicultural, you know, bike, uh, cops support uh, cops is not the right word, but you know, the bike, um, yeah, how would you describe uh, them? Well, I'm thinking like, of like, like I'm Guardian, Guardian yeah. Angels is the yeah. sort of the, <laughs> the, the Guardian Angels who come to their rescue, uh, to, to her rescue rather. Um, it feels it feels almost unrehearsed, you know. It's it, it feels like it almost feels like activist video, you know, like documenting documenting, which I get you know compares to your Occupy, you know, metaphor. It's like hmm. it's like this is this is happening. You know, it's like this, it's like, this is happening right now. And I also think, you know, and I, I know this came up at the Q and A, uh, you know, with the Me Too and Time's Up movements, you know, it's like, there's, 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 we're again reminded of, you know, it's like how, how rare it is to have a film like this, you know, in some sort of popular <laughs> canon, right? That's like, or, you know, it's, 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 it's written and produced by women and, and acted, you know, largely by women in terms of the main characters. Um, you know, the men aren't treated so good, which is a very, very good thing. Um, yeah. Well, especially as a commentary on the Reagan revolution, which made no room for women at all, right? There, totally. This is a film where, the white men we see are suit and tie Republicans, basically, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. the the other thing too is that it always surprises me that it was re- released three years before, I think, or two years before Atwood published The Handmaid's Tale because they've always gone together in my mind. Mm. They sort of work in they operate in tandem, mm. um, and I probably have the timeline wrong on that. Maybe The Handmaid's Tale was published in eighty four, eighty five, but Borden was there first. And the state she's portraying is not too far from Mm -hmm. the sort of casual totalitarianism in Atwood's book, Mm -hmm. the sense that all the things that needed to happen have already happened to put these people in charge and they're never giving it up. So, of Mm -hmm. course, you have organized rebellion from the people who are most marginalized by their policies. Mm -hmm. And the more time you spend with Borden's characters, the more... Well, I wasn't going to say the more right they are. They're right from the very beginning. But it's like even the radical ones start to sound reasonable because I kind of agree with literally everything they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Like, um, you know, if you've if you've if you've ever been a part of organizing anything political, it's like knowing that you're being watched somehow, somewhere like that's just kind of understood. Right. Mm-hmm. Or knowing that um that the authorities of course have you know not just a theory but they have a way of knowing you know or analyzing how people are organizing and why so like there's just so many lines in the film that you know like there's that line that the cop says you know it's like we don't even know how the hierarchy is structured and it's like well that is like like you know whether it was improv or whatever it doesn't matter it's like it's like that is that is it, right? It's like the, you know, the film, the, of course the film sets sets it up nicely as us, you know, us and them, you know, mm-hmm. and the, the women's army, you know, who is uh, running the show um, is fighting, you know, the powers, the greater powers that be, but it's like those, those systems, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say. It's like, it's like the film does this beauty. It's like, it's this beautiful job of being so political, but also so kind of funny, you know, like not at the expense of the characters, but it's like, it's really pointing out how absurd, you know, the authorities 
actually are to this day, right? And how they yeah. target target certain people. But it's like this is also this this is the way it's been for a very long time before this film, and it still is the way it is today. And um, and also, I love you know I I uh, she talks in an inter- Lizzie Borden talks in an interview on Mubi about. Uh, like the casting took years, but that, you know, it was, you know, she, she met, uh, she, she met one actor at the YWCA. She met one act, you know, she met someone else on the street or someone through a friend of a friend. Like it was, it was cast in this really, you know, non-traditional way and that they would spend, they spent months and months doing uh, what she described as kind of um, versions of a consciousness raising group where she just got women in the room and she was intentionally, making sure that it was very, you know, culturally diverse to just talk about what, what are your issues as a woman? Like what, you know, what is keeping you down? What is keeping you up at night? What are you worrying about? And like, I don't know, again, for me, it's like, that just, that just, that just speaks to me so much. It's like that this film was born like from, from women's actual, you know, real life experiences. Yeah. And concerns and yeah. it speaks to the moment in such a weird specific way, right? Like there are things in there that I don't, I always, this is something I wrestle with as a film critic more and more um, just because I am a, like I'm a middle-aged straight white man. I am the most boring <laughs> possible uh, accumulation of qualities. And a lot of these movies aren't being made with me in mind. And that's fine. It's absolute. I like those because they show me things that I wouldn't otherwise see. But something like Born in Flames is almost an, another language, or at least it was the first time I encountered it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have been in my, well, I'm going to guess early 20s, I suppose, whenever the tape came out, 91 or 92, something like mm-hmm. that. So maybe early mid. And I was still trying to understand the breadth of cinema and all the stuff that was in the world. And this comes along and it's only 10 years old and it feels like, like uh, again, like a transmission from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I get it. I I understand why everybody's mad. And and Mm -hmm. then the idea that other people couldn't understand that was really strange to me. And that sort of Mm -hmm. helped me understand where the movie came from, because this is a movie that's made by people who aren't being listened to. Yeah. Right. Like they're not. Yeah. They're not trying to. Well, we're in that. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to back up a little bit. There's this whole thing like just last week, um, maybe even over the weekend. I don't even remember. But but um, to to bring up Margaret Atwood again, she has been weighing in on the, on the uh-huh. trans conversation. And last uh-huh. week she retweeted uh, a Rosie D'Amato op-ed in the Toronto Star uh, about how you can't use the word woman anymore. And what's wrong with all that? And it was just just annoying. And then. A couple of days later, Atwood retweeted without actually commenting on it herself. She's just using her social media position mm-hmm. to amplify things. Someone had written a, a piece about how, boy, the trans activists now, they're so loud. They're so obnoxious. It doesn't help if you're noisy. You should protest politely. And it's the same <laughs> thing that's been going on for decade upon decade. I, you know, They said that about Malcolm X. They said that about Martin Luther totally. King, one of the most polite human beings in the world because he knew he had to be. Um, and he was too pushy. Mm-hmm. Or uppity, I suppose, was the word they mm-hmm. used in the '60s. Mm-hmm. But to to see an example of that coming out of the the you know the queer lesbian community in New York in the '80s, where they're using futurism 
because this is an early Afrofuturist work, even though Lizzie Borden's not black, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's all part mm-hmm. of the same movement. It comes from the same place. Mm-hmm. And to see something like that, and, and then to go back and read the reviews, which I have subsequently done, and people hated it. Totally. It was dismissed as alien. It was dismissed mm-hmm. as, as violence. And, and mm-hmm. it's exactly the same thing that's happening now in the, in the turf debate where people are just, yeah. you know, please don't shout me down. You should be more polite and respectful of my terrible opinion. <laughs> but this, like Lizzie Borden has no time for that. And this is 40, as you say, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this is a, as furious a film as I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And to realize now that not only has it not lost any of that anger, that all the anger still feels fully valid mm-hmm. uh, after another 30 years. I just, how, yeah, I haven't, I wasn't at the TIFF screening. How did Lizzie Borden seem? <laughs> how does she feel about it 35 years later? <laughs> um, yeah, there were, a lot, there were a lot of, there were, there were a lot of questions equally about like, how did the film even get made, you know, which is of course fascinating, but then, but there were a lot of questions about, yeah, 20, you know, seeing this film in 2016 and, um, she's, uh, Lizzie spoke, Lizzie spoke a lot. I mean, Lizzie, Lizzie did center herself as a white woman, you know, and she acknowledged that, you know, sure. that, uh, is what it is. Um, and that, you know, at times it, it was problematic, but but it, it, she made one of the, I, an interview I read in movie, she said, you know, and I didn't really, I, I actually didn't know this. She, she made this film as a response to her first film, Regrouping, which I've never seen. Yeah, me neither. I haven't seen yet, I should say. I don't um, know where you'd even find it. I don't know. Um, and one of the critiques of Regrouping is that it's an all white film, I guess. So she, 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 she very intentionally set out to make uh, yes, uh, uh, she wanted to make a film that was more representative of um, what she was seeing as a feminist experience in New York City in the early '80s. Um, and, but, but to really foreground, you know, most of the leads in the film aren't white, right? And so mm-hmm. she really intentionally did that. So she talked. She talked a lot about you know Black Lives Matter and other and other movements, you know, in terms of um, you know not just her support and solidarity, but that it's you know that it's it's like it's time for those of us, myself included, you know, who have space and profile, et cetera, and whatever we're doing to just, you know, be more not just aware of it, but, you know, sometimes yield it or give it up. And um, she's also talked a lot, and this will come as no surprise, you know, to, you know, she moved to L.A. She really wanted to make it in the in the film industry. And she felt that, you know, even as a white woman that it just, she could not, she couldn't get her films made. She couldn't get her scripts read. She couldn't, you know, she, she just kind of admitted failure, failure in the industry's terms, right? I mean, she kind of sure. admitted that she, you know, that she, it's like, she was very, very vulnerable, right? She kind of said, this is going to be the film I'm probably going to be <laughs> most remembered by, even though she's proud of other films that she's made. Um, but of course she's okay with that because she's, you know, still proud of the film. Something that struck me the first time I saw, um, which was also probably similar to you, like early nineties, I'm thinking, early mid nineties, probably mid nineties. Um, I, I love how the film doesn't present a single 
feminism or even a single socialism, you know, or whatever is, and it doesn't, it doesn't present, like, I think it does such an amazing, and I'm sure this, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this came out through the collective, you know, um, writing and, and acting process. Cause some, some of the, some of the act, some of the actors, and of course it's mostly non-actors, um, you know, were improving, you know, or were kind of writing, they were, they wrote, a, they wrote most of the film as they were going, right. Like mm-hmm. as they were shooting scenes. Um, but I just, I just, I just really love how the film conveys, you know, I mean, intersectionality is the, is an important current buzzword, but it's like the film itself. I just think it just is that, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 um, you know, there's moments of humor where they're kind of, you know, poking fun at each other's positions, but it's like the film doesn't take a position except you could argue at the end, you know, for like the larger <laughs> desire to control the media and control the, and control the means of, um, of information control. Um, but that, that's important for everyone, regardless yeah, of whether exactly. you're a com- communist, socialist, feminist, whatever. And it's like, I just, I, but I do love that the film kind of, it presents how women are impacted and oppressed, but not solely through their specific political position. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the, as you say, the common goal of of telling your story, of grabbing the grabbing control of the media and making yourself heard is the one thing everybody wants. Mm-hmm. So we have all of these different uh, agendas that line up in the end with one thing. So the movie can only go in that direction, which is mm-hmm. very clever structurally. Everybody has enough time before we reach that ending to make their case, right? Like it's the best, the best and worst thing about any true revolutionary movement is that you cannot do anything without arguing about it for, you know, <laughs> three times longer than it takes to do whatever action is totally. uh, ultimately decided on. And, and this gets that like born in flames has these really digressive kind of almost arguments, mm-hmm. conversations that become arguments mm-hmm. And they feel like the camera just happened to be in the room with them. Like there's no, there's no sense of mm-hmm. worrying about blocking a scene or making sure we hit like the points aren't that important. And I'd love to see, you know, the first assembly cut, which is probably three times longer and, and has a dozen other different conversations that could have been mm-hmm. just as interesting, but it's everybody coming at the thing the oppression that they're they're dealing with mm-hmm. from their own perspective and Borden just lets it roll. She mm-hmm. gives us the time with these people to see where they're coming from, mm-hmm. which, you know, now I think you just, you'd be racing to get to the next skirmish, the next scene between riot police <laughs> and our, and our heroes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's just not interested in that. She just wants to know them. I also love the music in the film. Lizzie was pretty embedded in the, no wave scene in New mm-hmm. York City in the early '80s, and and there's musicians, you know, in the film, you know, uh, uh, acting, like Adele Bertai, who was in uh, the Contortions, um, and then many others. Um, but I think it was she um, she asked a friend of hers who was in the Red Crayola, uh, Mayo Thompson, uh, if if he'd write something for the film, and he came up with the song "Born in Flames." which is how she titled the film. She didn't have, she hadn't decided a title uh, until <clears throat> she got the song. Um, but again, I mean, it happens to be, you know, some of the music I'm most fond of as a human, but it's, it's like, there's this, there's this punky, funky, 
energy in the soundtrack, you know, and there's also R&B and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, staple singers. And um, so it's not just, it's not just no wave, but there's something, there's something, there's something energetically in the music that really parallels, you know, the, the handheld shooting and the editing for me, that's like, like I want to get in the streets you know it's like when's the when is the next when is the next demonstration please can we get beyond this pandemic so we can yeah. go, to, go to Queens Park or wherever we want to go and um you know stir some shit up yeah. well there's an election coming up in the spring I'm sure there'll be lots of yelling about that <laughs> yes and then another one in the fall we're going to just get so beaten down get ready uh, i mean i mean psychically not physically at least i hope not. um but yeah no it is it's it's alive in a way that mm-hmm. i mean if, if they worked on it for five years then that means it started in 1978 so it's basically right as old as punk almost yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it's it is a punk work yeah and what amazed me watching it this time is that Catherine freaking bigelow is in it i mean i knew that but to see her 40 years later and Eric Bogosian, I think this was mm-hmm. the first time he'd been in anything in front of a camera. Uh, Ron Vodder, who mm-hmm. I only knew as the therapist from Sex, Lies and Videotape, I think. Right. right. Um, and Mark mm-hmm. Boone Jr. is a creep in this. He's one of the, he's one of the guys who's, he's billed in oh. Wikipedia as men in subway harassing women, <laughs> which kind of nails his persona. <laughs> I've interviewed him. He's he's not that guy, but he's the guy you cast to play that guy because he has a certain look. And um, it's just this, this, it feels fertile. It feels like they were there at the right time with the camera to capture these cultural movements that then would explode outward in all these other directions. Like Bigelow was, after this, she would go on and make, I think she'd already made The Loveless, her first film with Defoe. And she's just this incredible cinematic talent who everyone identifies with Los Angeles because that's where she ended up working. But there she is just banging around in New York, working with these, these weirdos with the cameras. She's just gravitated to it. I think she might've even still been No, I think they might've met her at Columbia. I can't remember the exact timeline. John Harkness went to Columbia with her. Oh, wow. I think, or maybe NYU, they were, they were classmates in film studies. And I just can't remember when that was. The but if this was 80, is, the Loveless was 81. So you're, okay, so you're, you're totally onto it. Yeah. Yeah. It's just this scene that's happening and, and this movie keeps it alive somehow. I do want to talk about the production of it and the, and the, mm. the way necessity drives almost everything that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mm. did Borden talk about that at the Q and A? Did she discuss mm. the, um, the sense that the whole thing is just held together with scotch tape and whoever they had in front of them that day? And somehow it works. Yeah, she did. She did talk. She, she, I think, yeah, she did. She definitely talked about the budget and the, and how it was made and how I, I, I forget if it was 30,000 or four, you know, it's something, it's something unbelievably small. Mm-hmm. Like it's just unbelievable. But I remember her saying something like, you couldn't like how, how it happened could never happen again. You know, like, and, and she didn't, like, she wasn't saying it arrogantly. It was just sort of like, it's like she would never do it again that way, but also like who would? It's like it's like you know they were literally borrowing Bolexes, you know, which are sixteen millimeter film cameras. Mm-hmm. They were borrowing, you know, they were using bikes as dollies, and you know, like it's like they it was it's like she broke, they broke every rule, um, in the filmmaking book. And I also love I'm trying to find it, of course, but I can't. But she, you know, 
there's this there's this quote I love where Lizzie Borden says like if I'd ever gone to film school I never would have made it <laughs> and I'm and I'm so glad I didn't it's like because there's this tension right it's like what it's like you know how it was written collectively the fact that it took five years you know the fact that you know the actors are mostly non-actors a but also you know writing themselves or improving themselves or you know that you know she 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 shared that someone gave her that footage from uh uh an action in algeria right she like someone gave her a tape there's right. that there's that well, i think it, i think it's a single clip right yeah we watch Where it early on yeah and and that and that for, for her that was like oh okay i'm going to connect that to a subplot um 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 so it was like, but that only happened, you know, it's like, who makes the film that way? You know, unless you're Lizzie Borden and the, and the folks around her that were like willing, willing to do it. So yeah, she, she talked a lot about the spirit of like, you know, she, she, she also had shared, which I appreciated that, you know, through that, through that collective <clears throat> consciousness raising writing process that some people did drop out. Like for some people, it was like, whether they were curious or like committed or like open or like, you know, they loved film or they were an activist who like wanted to make a film. Like along the way, some people were like, you know what? I'm not in it. For, like, it's, you know, I, I would have loved to have heard more myself. Like, did they drop out because they were fed up or because they were exhausted yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, be, or because they got to pay the bills? You know, it's like, cause obviously no one got paid or if they did, it was just, you know, and Krispy Kreme vouchers or you know, yeah. Uh, tickets or something. I don't know. Um, Nathan's Nathan's hot dogs. Yeah. Um, I somehow but, picture ski ball tickets being involved. I have no idea why. It's the Coney Island thing. It's yeah. Just totally. like you know, you can yeah. get a you get a Cupid doll for being in this Cupid landmark and film a, that and a, and a Nathan's hot dog. Yeah. Um, um, but she also says, "I'm I'm going to read this one." Uh, sure. Lizzie said, "I wanted to create Born in Flames as a kind of fantasy about how various people could come together across race and class lines, which is why I call the film science fiction. I don't, I don't know that it's uh, ever possible to do this. And it's like, I, I, I remember, cause I, when, when, when I first came across it being called a science fiction, I was like, Oh, that's, huh. that's not what I like. I just don't, I wouldn't think of it as science fiction myself, although I get it. It's set in the future, right? And it's got this utopian-ish, you know, like focus. But it was like, but I love, I love how she, it's like for her, the film, the film had to be a utopia, right? Across race and class and um, uh, um, you know, cultural background lines, yeah. and it's like. So even if it's 10, even if it's only 10 years ahead, then it's science fiction. Yeah. No, I mean, if you're making this during the Reagan, the first Reagan administration, well, right. that would be the feeling, right? There's no well, way this sure. could possibly happen. Yeah. I mean, think about it. They started in 78 and Iran, Iran, con, um, not Iran Contra, sorry, the Iran hostage, the yeah. Iran hostage crisis was 79, started in 79, Reagan's elected in 80 and, you know, and then, you know, and then it's the Reagan years, right? Where you can't say AIDS and you can't, you know, you there's like, you can't support women and you can't support, um, you know, anyone that's civil not, rights, yeah, yeah civil rights. you can't support anyone who's not rich and white. And so it's like that, yeah, that like the 78 to 83 is like, it's such a, it's such a, a, rep a regressive and repressive time in the U S right. And, um, yeah. Well, in the I'm trying to remember when the any the attacks on the NEA started. 
but it would have been right around that same time. So this would have yeah. emerged into that world. Yeah. Well, I think Jesse Helms didn't really get rolling on that stuff till this. A little later. Yeah, like Reagan's yeah. second term. Yeah. When yeah. They were like feeling their oats. 86, maybe 85, 86. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The culture wars. Yeah. But I can yeah. see this film being seen as one of the first salvos from the, you know, like the filthy hippies or whatever they were calling mm -hmm. them at the time, because they were still mm -hmm. fighting the, the 60s. Mm -hmm. When someone asked her, what do you miss about New York? You know, like in, in the 80s, mm -hmm. uh, when it was made. And she said, you know, believe it or not, she's like, I miss the grit, you know, like the, you know, like the cities, like it's not gritty anymore. But she's like, I really miss the World Trade Center. And she said, you know, if you'd asked me that before 2001, I would never have said that because at the time it was like, the big phalluses, you know, in the, in the center of wealth, you know, in the financial district. And, um, you know, they represented a lot of things to hate, but she's like, now that they're gone, I really, I really miss them. I miss them as, you know, I miss the architecture of those buildings. And I mean, who could have, you know, again, this film, you know, the very last shot. Yeah. <laughs> is the antenna on the top of one of the towers um, exploding um, because someone plants a device mm -hmm. and, you know, you can't, you know, you just can't foresee something like that, of course, but it's like the fact that it's captured, you know, the building is captured in this film so beautifully, the opening, you know, the opening sequence, you know, shots of the building are amazing. Um, but also that it ends on that, like that's the last shot of the film is yeah. the building, the antenna at least exploding is is really, it's it's a wild finish yeah. um, given what's happened since. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it played like a reminder <laughs> this time around just because it opens yeah. with, yeah, as you said, we, the buildings aren't hidden for the, that's not like that's the only yeah. time we see it, yeah. but it is really jarring that last image popping right in front of you and like oh right that's that's where we are that's what this is about yeah and it's the same argument right every time if you don't listen like if you if you if you try to repress the the irrepressed the unrepressed i know i'm making some weird it argument but basically i'm trying to draw it back to oh yeah well Reagan did fund the Mujahideen who became Al-Qaeda, who became this thing. So I guess she was onto that too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In a really horrible mm -hmm. way. Yeah. It is like the, the most impassioned yeah. kind of prophecy. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Yeah. Even though that hadn't happened yet. No, no. And um, and of course that came up when she did the QA, right? Like, because it's it is a very it's the film is powerful enough, you know, like you don't need to, to but it's like the fact that that's the, happens to be the last, like the, the, the last shot of the film is, is an explosion at the world trade center, you know, after they take over the TV station, you know, and, and after a lot of other things, it's like, wow, but you're right. It's like connecting it, you know, connecting it to Reagan Bush, connecting it to the Mujahideen funding, you know, which then became Al Qaeda and the Taliban, which, you know, very recently was just a whole, disaster 20 years later it's like yep. you know it's like this film is both you know whatever it is now 38 years old but it but it's also 38 minutes old you know it's like it's like this is <laughs> it's like every these things are connected and not really that far in the distance and you know i guess what i was trying to say earlier about science fiction was like and this is this is my own weakness it's like oh i always think of science fiction as like it's like 
thousand years away or whatever. And it's like, so I, I, it's also really, it's, it's so cool that, sh- that they decided to set it just 10 years ahead, you know, when it's like, you know, in 10 years, what am I trying to say? It's like, in, it's like the film, I think kind of beautifully sets this future as if it's like, it's close, mm-hmm. right? Like it's actually, it's at our fingertips. Like, you know, it's like it was when they made it, but it's like, it still is, you know, cause these, it's like back to where we started in a way. It's like these, these, these suppressions and these racisms and these abuses, like they haven't gone away, they haven't gone anywhere, you know, um, but it's like, it's still it's so close, you know, it's not really that far off. <laughs> yeah. We've just gotten better at denying it, I think as a species culturally or, or tweeting about it and then feeling good, you know, or, or whatever. It's like, we, um, I wrote the shortest possible sentence about this. I'm done. It's depressing as hell. Uh, but you know, I think about something like, um, like Dennis Goulet's night Raiders now, uh, which again is shot two years ago and commenting on the moment that we're living in somehow. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's this continuum. We never learn culturally. And, uh, and Lizzie Borden was out there asking us to, you know, pick up a lesson for almost 40 years ago. So I don't know how well it applies on this, in this case, but the, the final question on the podcast is always, is there anything of this movie that you've used, borrowed, lifted, stolen, integrated, incorporated into your own work? Um, does that apply to programming, do you think? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think that as, um, more so as a programmer than a very part-time filmmaker, mm-hmm. um, and especially through my work at Rendezvous with Madness, because we do still program as a committee. And um, I like to share with folks that, you know, think about how film festivals make their hard decisions. You know, it's, it's, it's more common that once a festival gets, you know, eight, 10, 15 years uh, old, that they move toward a artistic director or program director, you know, they kind of start as a collective or as a group or whatever committees. And then they, you know, they, usually the decision-making gets funneled and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really, it's one of the, one of the things I love about uh, programming at Rendezvous is that this year was a six person committee and we, we make decisions together and we don't always agree and that's okay. Right. We, we like, we kind of accept that we're not, you know, we have such different backgrounds and, and preferences. So I try to bring that spirit that Lizzie Borden brought to creating this amazing film, you know, in terms of working collectively, eyes on the prize, you know, knowing that it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. We're not always going to agree. Some meetings are going to feel like a so-called waste of time. Some meetings are going to feel so in sync, you know, and like life-changing. But at the but, you know, when we get to that date in the calendar that everyone dreads, it's like, we're going to have to make decisions together and we're going to have to, you know, like I, 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 I love the process, you know, and, and part of me loves it because it's messy and it's like born in flames is messy, right? Like <laughs> I, I, I can only imagine the production was messy, but it's like the, as a film, it's messy, right? It's not, it's not the most polished thing, which is one of the things I love about it, but it's like, I do, I do try to bring this, um, you know, I love working collectively. I, I've always had collective side projects outside of my day job where it's like, this is my comfort zone is um, trying to collaborate to try to make good things happen together. And um, 
and finding appreciation in the, in the disagreements, right? And also learning, like I learned so much from disagreeing with other people, especially film nerds, right? It's like, cause I, I, I see things differently all the time and that's like such a gift. My thanks to Scott Miller-Berry. The 2021 Rendezvous with Madness Festival gets underway this Thursday, October 28th, in person at Workman Arts in Toronto and online at workmanarts.com. Thanks also to Jen Paris. She knows what she did. You can find Scott on Twitter at Cineparlor, C-I-N-E-P-A-R-L-O-U-R, and you can find Born in Flames streaming on Canopy in North America, and it's also on Ovid up here in Canada. It's also available on Apple TV for 99 cents right now and Vimeo On Demand. And I'm sure there'll be a Criterion release eventually, right? As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I host the Now What podcast every Friday, in addition to writing far too many words about movies and television. We've got a haunted Toronto horror walk dropping this Thursday. That'll be cool. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Watch movies. Stay safe. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your shot already. I'll see you next time. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.